Well, greetings and welcome to another edition of The Deal Flow Show. I'm J.P. Maroney, your host, along with my co-host, Mr. Paul Nicolini, from here at Harbor City Capital. And we've got Jay Sauvey on the show with Cadence Capital. And um, want to jump into real quick, and I've you know done a little bit of research, talked to you uh, in advance through our team, and want to learn a little bit about how you got started in the capital markets. And then we're going to kind of dive into, dig inside your knowledge of how you put deals together, your process for, you know, vetting things and what the deal breakers are, what the deal makers are for you. So, Jay, let's go back a little bit and talk about how you first got started in the capital markets. Yeah, so uh, I took a little bit of a, a unique route. So, again, thanks for having me, too. Uh, enjoyed being here. So, uh, I was an attorney for 17 years um, and uh, had always had an eye on doing something different. And um, my my goal was to get into something in the private equity and the, the VC side of things. Uh, always been a deal junkie my whole career. And uh, in 2009, I got a job in New York City at uh, Tishman Spire, a pretty large real estate private equity fund, and working on all sorts of transactions. Uh, they had done a lot of fun work, but uh, really started moving in the one-off joint venture type um, developments and acquisition platform and so basically that's what I do now and uh, through the course of that I was always looking for uh, you know an opportunity to try to do something more on the business side and when my partner and, and very longtime friend Michael Bennett started to uh, think about starting an equity arm for uh, Cadence uh, we continued to talk I mean we have been talking for, for years anyway and it was the right time. And so I uh, jumped ship in uh, the beginning of 2018 to join him in building the platform further. And it's been a fun ride. So when you make a big shift like that, after having been on a career path the way you were, what were some of the biggest ahas or things that you didn't expect coming in? Uh, well, I think some of the biggest things is just... Uh, there was, I will be frank, it was a lot of fear, frankly. I hadn't done this before. You know, I went from a, a position where I was uh, passive. You know, things came to me and I dealt with them. And, and certainly working in-house was better than, uh, you know, in my view, uh, at a law firm. At least then I had more control. I saw things from beginning to end. It was kind of my show to run things, but uh, still wasn't really called on to kind of go out there and, and make it for myself. And so, you know, leading up to the time when it actually happened, I was a little bit petrified. Um, but, and, you know, I think when I first started, I was probably terrible. And, uh, but over time, what you just learned is that, you know, you put in the work, you put in the time, you make the calls and you get better and you get better. And uh, at the end of the day ends up, you look back and it's like, this isn't scary at all. This isn't a problem at all. And, uh, you know, I'm very glad that I did make the move. I've got a great boss. <laughs> Is there a specific area of the real estate that y'all gravitate towards? And then how have you seen that affected by this COVID post COVID, uh, situation? Yeah. So we are, we are asset class agnostic, uh, that being said, uh, and we'll do acquisition deals and development deals, but generally where we're seeing most of our work is on the development side. And um, today it's probably primarily multifamily and multifamily is the biggest asset class anyway. Uh, so those are probably where we spend the most time, both pre and post COVID. Uh, we also do opportunity zone work too, but 
excuse me, it's not exclusive. Uh, it, it really was, I, I left it out. I was a tax attorney for those 17 years and in, in-house. And so kind of when this came about, I just saw that it was a very, very powerful program and we should, should get involved there. Um, and it kind of really played into our strengths of our database and how we run our process. We can talk about that later. Uh, so we do that too. Uh, COVID has affected a lot and um, it really hasn't changed our focus all too much other than continuing to be selective in our process. Uh, we, we, we have a screening tool that we put together with the MBA students from the University of Michigan. They have like an outturnship program that they're all required to take uh, that helps us to look at the, the factors that capital finds important. So we connected them with some family offices and investors and developers, gave them a crash course and then sent a survey out to our sponsors to help us weed these deals out. Uh, because of, we work on a contingency basis and uh, I don't want to work on things I'm not going to get paid on. So, uh, but that also helps us to to make sure that we're taking on deals and we're beating up deals before we take them out. We don't find the landmines three months into it, four months into it. And I think what's happened today in the post-COVID world is that there are groups who are, you know, kind of sitting out waiting to see what happens because they think maybe there's going to be more trouble coming. Uh, you haven't seen a lot of it yet. Uh, and that might just be a factor of there's been a lot of government intervention, like, well, you can't kick people out you can't do this. Um, and, and we'll see what happens with that. And there's certainly been a lot of fiscal stimulus to date. You know, what happens in if three or four months from now and that doesn't take place, I'm assuming that will take place, but uh, regardless of what happens, and um, and so it just caused a big upheaval. And so people are just being, they're either sitting on the sidelines waiting for the other shoe to drop. Um, coincidentally, that's what happened in April. They're like, oh, well, you know, it's fine in April, but May's gonna be worse and it never did. And well, May's fine, maybe June's gonna be worse and never did. Um, so it's been pretty resilient to some extent, but people are much more cautious. And there's definitely a, um, preference for uh, existing product compared to development product. There's uh, certainly multifamily and industrial are more preferred. I mean, hotel and retail are kind of a mess right now. Retail was already a mess. It's just more mess. And uh, office is the big unknown. And because it's a big unknown and how it's going to play out, it also is not getting a whole lot of traction. And so um, at, at the end of the day, we're, we're just concentrating on the things that we think people are going to be interested in, and that's multifamily and industrial, mostly. So med medical office as well. You talked about office. Yeah, I, I saw the other day, I think it was California, an article I was reading about where they were dumping massive amounts of sublet office space into the market. Mm -hmm. um, yep. the, certainly, we've seen it. I mean, you're coming in virtually with us, whereas we would love to have you here on the set. Um, a lot of people are figuring out that they can do business remotely where it was an option before it became yep. a mandate. And now I think many, many people will never go back to the way things were before. Um, incidentally, if you're watching or listening to this episode of The Deal Flow Show, you can get access to our archives, our previous episodes, as well as our future episodes and subscribe and follow us by going to thedealflowshow.com, thedealflowshow.com. Uh, Jay, we've heard from many of the past guests about the JOBS Act, so we know that that's also impacted Cadence Capital and maybe specifically in the Opportunity Zones. You want to talk about that? 
Sure. So, um, so I, as I had to, I have a little bit of a deep inside knowledge. I mean, real estate has always been a very uh, generous tax investment for investors. There's, there's a number of provisions that uh, you can you can defer recognizing income using depreciation and other methodologies. So has great advantages. You could do tax planning for generational transfers. There's a lot of things there that are, um, you know, very, very detailed, but they're there. Uh, and, and when you add the opportunity zones onto it, but basically where you can invest capital gains of any sort into a project, defer paying taxes on those for a number of years. Uh, and then once you set, if you hold that asset for 10 years, you don't pay tax when you sell it. That's pretty, pretty powerful. And, and all the other stuff that already applied to real estate still applies too. So they, you don't lose out on those other benefits at the same time. Um, and so I think uh, it's continuing to be and will continue to be something that people are interested in. I think what's happened to some extent was there was this idea in some people's minds that, oh, opportunity zone, I can charge or I can, people will pay more for something. And so I, my returns don't have to be as strong from a sponsored perspective. And that has not played out to date. Uh, people are very cautious. They want to make sure that the real estate is a good, strong deal on its own, regardless, because tax benefits don't matter if you have a loss. So uh, they're, they're very concentrated on it. And people, people really are, are starting to gravitate more and more to it. It just uh, it's complicated and it's not for everyone. It's not for just jumping off the shelf and saying you're going to learn about it because there's, as with anything in tax, unfortunately, it gets very complicated very fast. What are the bookends in terms of size of deals, smallest to the largest, and then kind of what is y'all's sweet spot? Sure. We usually don't go below 10. Uh, we've done certainly a couple sevens or eights on the equity side of things. Uh, and then on the larger side, you know, I like big deals. I'm, I'm used to big deals. So we're, we're working on a couple hundred million dollar projects. I think we prefer typically to be in the 15 to say $30 million range. I think that's primarily because that's where the bulk of our capital resides. I mean, we have family offices, uh, private equity funds, big, small, small, large banks, insurance companies, et cetera. And it just kind of that range overlaps a lot of those groups. And so um, again, from, from our standpoint, we want to take on deals that we think are going to have a high likelihood of, of being financed. And so we like to play in the space where there's the most, uh, you know, arrows to shoot. So y'all are raising the equity for the projects? Yeah, we raise it. We raise equity. We place debt. I don't want to say that we don't do that. I mean, that's what my concentration on the equity side, but we have a whole debt team as well. Uh, can do pres, construction, bridge, whatever it might be. But uh, on the equity side, which was my specialty and the bulk of what my firm does, we're looking to find that single bullet investor to take 90% typically of the, of the common equity in the deal. And are you selling it based on the tax strategies? I mean, does that come into play in your deal making process, that background that you have? Um, no. <laughs> uh, maybe on, a, on occasion I do, and, and maybe I did uh, more when I was first getting going, but not. I. Don't even bring it up really at, at all. So Jay, let, uh, let us understand though, you look for single check writers, is that what you said? Yes, sir. 
on the the capital stack when you're looking at let's let's take a 50 million dollar deal how much of that is going to be equity uh typically 35 percent 40 percent these days uh there it was starting to creep up where you could get more pre-covid um one of the things that's happened is that pretty much overnight the the banks themselves have really cut back on lending i think they're lending to their relationships so you know like a bank of america type uh bank and the local banks and then um on the um i think some of the, the debt funds got got hammered uh and so uh leverage has come back down and people are being very conservative what they're lending on it's getting better i mean may compared to today is is night and day but it's still not anywhere near what it was six nine months ago whatever it was you played uh with your background sorry to talk That's about right. <laughs> you played a a different role as you said with your legal background in the beginning days before making this shift but you know today i guess but i would be willing to bet that you take a different approach to vetting deals than the average bear because of your legal background. But when you're looking at deals and vetting deals, that, that pre-deal making process, can you walk us through how you think, the mindset, the process, maybe some of the steps? Yeah, so I think the first thing we wanna do is we're, we're gonna take a look at, we like to get dirty uh, in, and we, so if there's something that's put together that's great as far as like an offer a memorandum, we usually create our own got our own ideas on how that should be done. And uh, what we're what we're getting the Excel underwriting and we're gonna go through that and we're going to beat it up. I want, want to make sure that investors expect to see things in a certain format and certain and, and that things are done on like a monthly basis as opposed to an annual basis. Um, when you have like a three year deal, if you do something annually, you get a much different th answer when you do it over what might be 40 months. Anyway, uh, so, Put it into a format that makes sense and then we're going to i'll use multifamily. everyone every deal's got their own kind of metrics but multifamily. so what are the rents where you know how do those compare to market rents how fast are you leasing this up are you are you increasing rents during the construction period how much uh where, where are you seeing uh exit cap rates and how does your exit cap rate compare and, and then lastly, one of the big things that people focus on is the, the, the delta between uh, your exit cap rate and your yield on cost. So um, wh what's that spread? And they, one and a half percent is a, a good, good rule of thumb. It's a little bit tighter in major markets. It's wider in not so major markets. Uh, Jay, to that point, too, there's a lot of moving parts when the deals are being made. What are some of the red flags or what are some of the deal breakers for, for you and for Cadence? Well, I think sponsorship is important. I mean, it's it's always been important. Now I think it's even more important. I think that this is something that's pretty subjective, but, you know, you always kind of get a feel for things or, you know, there's if there's some kind of game playing going on or or something that usually starts to not sit very well. Um, from us, I think there's, there usually should be a story. Uh, there should be a good geography, I think is one of our first things. If it's gonna be outside of a certain geography, you're probably not even gonna look at it. Uh, and then the returns, we just have a certain return expectation in our mind of where we think things should be today. And if it doesn't hit those, those uh, initial benchmarks on our first pass, it's probably, you know, out 
Um, and then where there could be landmines after that, it all everywhere. <laughs> Just kind of be deal specific. Anything else about the opportunity zones that you can share? I know that's been a big topic. There's entire conferences and events around it right now. Where you see that going over the next few years? I, I think it's going to continue to grow because it's really in the first, maybe it's in the second inning now, where at first people didn't understand it, uh, that it was, it's, I mean, it's a whole brand new um, branch of the tax law, frankly. And when you typical tax stuff, not to get too, too nerdy about it, but they develop over 10, 20, 30, 40 years. I mean, I, my whole job was full-time to figure out how to deal with tax rules that have been in existence forever. And, and so that's the amount of complexity. And I would, and we continually find, and every you know, person in that field finds gray area all the time. So you can imagine when you have a whole new set of any of everything with all these new rules and details that again, which falls off very quickly. I mean, high level, it's very easy, but devil's in the details. Um, that's very hard to get your arms around and get comfortable with things. When, especially when you're talking about potentially get a single check writer for $40 million, the tax consequences could be significant, bigger, even more. So, people were getting were very cautious because they didn't know how these things were gonna play out. And then over the course of 2019, more and more stuff came out, got people more comfortable, and now you're starting to see that put into practice. We're like, okay, we have a lot of the things taken care of, we have a lot of the questions um, solved, now let's go find deals that, that make sense. And I think that the, the market is maturing to the point where there are less of these deals out there, I think, or I haven't seen them any, as many lately that are just pie in the sky type things. Um, I don't want to list any of them because it might be obvious, but you know, some of the things I've seen were just insane. I mean, they just were insane. And I, I just didn't understand sometimes like who thought they were a good idea uh, and how they convinced themselves to spend time doing it. But you know, they continue to happen. And, it, and what that happened to do too was to turn a lot of people off from the investment side because, you know, if you're sitting there, you're in a family office and you've got a lot of money to manage and every time you get an opportunity zone deal, it's some crazy project that doesn't have any basis to reality or the return expectations are just, you know, not realistic for someone who wants to make money. Uh, you just kind of like get jaded to it. And I think that as that has died off and people have maybe done a deal, know someone who's done a deal, you're gonna to continue to say, okay, this is a good program. There are good opportunities out there. I should be looking at this. And uh, it's just gonna to continue to grow. Other than the obvious um, simplicity maybe of having a single check writer, why did Cadence decide to go down that path? In other words, why is that your choice uh, for raising the equity? I think it's the simplicity and really, I mean, it's my comfort zone and it's really where I think we spend a lot of time finding and harvesting investors. And uh, we're looking to find people who are sophisticated, who can interface with, um, with the sponsorship group. We can do a lot of them. Uh, because our, our database is very diverse and large. I think if you were to go down the path of, of 
finding $100,000 check writers, you gotta amass a pretty substantial database of those. It will take a very large amount of time. And I think at some point, unless you get to a pretty really substantial number, it's gonna impact the number of deals that you can do because obviously, even though you have a very large database, there's only so many deals that certain people will do. And obviously the check size might be bigger or smaller. Uh, and so your capacity will be constrained. And uh, putting that all together, I think that's really the primary reason. How have you, and this may be secret sauce, I don't know, but how have y'all built that database? It's one thing to compile a list of potential targets. It's another thing to have a relationship with them to get in the door, as well as to persuade them that, that it makes sense for y'all to be a part of the project. So what's been y'all's process for building that, that network and that, that database? Uh, so I think... The secret sauce is hard work, uh, and, and you're right. We have I have two jobs. My my one job is to find clients and execute on the deals for them, but my other job is to find other capital sources too. And so it's a background process that's happening, uh, both in connection with the deal and just passively, it, and identifying people who we want to. Want to target, and so that that could be from connections with other other capital sources we have, uh, reading articles, and you're like, oh, who's that group? I've never heard of them before, um, and just general digging around. You you learn more, and you find out other groups, and then you do the hard work, which is trying to get a hold of them. I mean, a lot of our time we spend, uh, particularly on the family office side, uh, it's a hard it's a hard uh, cabal to kind of break into, but you know, you spend the time because it's worth the energy. And as you do that, as you do more deals with those those uh, types of groups, the more they're open to conversations with you and introductions to you. And so it's just, it's just part of the grind. And uh, you know, it's it's a good way to get those minor victories on a week to week basis where you, you get there and group you've been trying to get in front of for six to, to nine months. And then they're finally like, all right, let's, let's talk. And um, part of it, and then obviously maintaining those relationships, but what we try to do specifically is we wanna make sure we understand what everyone wants. It's not that I just know that this group is out there and they have money. I wanna know what do you want, where do you want it, what's your risk profile, what's your check size range, what asset classes are you interested in, so that when there's an opportunity, I send them something that they want. Not so that what we're trying to avoid is sending them a whole bunch of things they don't want so that when my email comes in, they just delete it. Um, I think some of our competitors have a, a different tactic and they just blast, 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 blast. And, you know, I don't, I don't want a hobby lobby in Tulsa. So, um, you know, those maybe those are good deals, but you know, you just kind of get to the point where you're getting these emails that you might not want and you just get numb to it. So everything is really done to preserving and maintaining those relationships with the capital. Send them deals that they want. Send them deals that we've vetted. Send them offering memorandums that are direct, straight to the point. Here are all the things that you need to know whether you wanna talk about this further on page two. Not at the end of this thing, after you know reading, cruising through 50 pages, oh, there's a tenant can kick out in two years. It's like, that's the whole thing. Like, so uh, all of it is done with a view to making sure that they're happy and continue to just answer our emails. 
Uh, Jay, outside of the opportunity zones, give us a 30,000 foot view of where you see the real estate market going and then where does Cadence Capital fit into that scenario? Sure. Uh, I think the, the easy part we fit in is that um, when things get hard, we're, we're, we're a good group to know. We have a lot of relationships on the capital side with people ha who have money and are looking for opportunities. And it's always about, and it really helps to know what you want. I mean, we spent a month, two months in April and May talking to probably four or 500, 600 different capital groups to understand and banks and, and, and lenders. What do you want? What, do you, what, is it, what are you doing right now? So that's how we reacted to it. And so now when I have things that might be a little bit outside the box or a, a distressed opportunity, I know some of the groups that want those. And so I'm just gonna send it right to them. And maybe you know that's how we get really good at our job when we see opportunities where it's like, I know who wants that, that's this group. And, and you can be very efficient with your, with your job. Um, and then, you know, as what's going on in the world, I think you're going to continue to see industrial being gangbuster. Uh, it's just, it, it was before COVID happened. It's even more so now. I, I, I knew a group that was under contract on five or six deals in a portfolio pre-COVID, dropped it in COVID, bought it 10% higher pricing after COVID kind of hit. So it, it just, it's on fire. You're going to continue to see i think multifamily will continue to do well and i think people are going to make some some good bets on the office side and and the retail side and the hospitality side because it's not all going to fail and and i personally believe that office is going to come back um or maintain or whatever it is to some extent you're going to have maybe people want more space there was a group that was uh, just signed a lease in chicago and one of the biggest things that they wanted, they tripled their size, I believe. And uh, one of the reasons why they tripled their size was because they wanted more space for the people. And maybe that becomes a theme where it offsets some of these people working from home. Uh, but I also believe too that uh, the office doesn't go away because of the collaboration element. And maybe it doesn't, isn't necessary for every job role but when I certainly did transactions and when I was an attorney, I, I, can't, I can't count how many times I would just quickly go down the hallway to get an answer on a question and, or sit in my boss's office for three hours, pounding through something that's very complicated, trying to get to the bottom of it, where that is best done internally. And then in, in a collaborative environment together, uh, or, Another way where you just go down the hall, you go talk to your buddy and you say, oh, I'm working on this deal and I got this thing. He's like, oh, well, you should call this guy. Or did you think about this? And takes that thing in a whole new direction. And I'm talking about transactions, but I think that's one of the reasons that you're going to continue to see them in the tech world. Facebook has been doubling down. They, they basically said this during the first, during the, the, the great uh, recession, they were like, well, what we're going to do uh, is we're just gonna get more space at a cheaper price. And you're seeing them do the exact same thing today. They're just gonna get gobble more and more of that space because that's what they see. And if Facebook is doing that, everyone's gonna be doing that. Uh, what I also find is that it's hard to train people. And how are you, if you're a small business, maybe four or five people, sure. If you've got, like Google hires 20,000, 30,000 people a year, how do you train those people if they're all over the place? And then lastly, I think from a productivity perspective, 
I was a young guy once. I, I know, I know uh, Paul for personally, he, he's, he's a man who likes to have a good time. And, um, you know, did you want to have a 21 year old Paul and just said, here, you know, here's 80 grand, you know, check your monitor. I don't think that's really a, a very productive use of people's time. And so the, the, the small cost of real estate compared to having to train and bring in new people or finding people that work efficiently uh, just doesn't, doesn't justify the work from home experience. And so I, I'm, I'm just a believer that it's going to continue to, uh, uh, it's going to come back or stay or whatever you want to call it. Maybe with some tweaks here and there. Did I hear him right? Was he throwing me under the bus? <laughs> I don't know. I was looking at you. Do you look like a guy that's partied too much? <laughs> it's a compliment. You know, if anyone Actually, wants to we did have a good time have up a good in time Napa, and have some that. drinks with a yeah. good man, Paul's, Paul, yeah. Paul's a man. Uh, Jay, tell us, though, how not everything goes, goes up and not everything goes your way. How does Cadence deal and maybe yourself as well? How do you guys deal with failure? It's inevitable. I mean, I think that's a good thing to, to ask. I mean, what so... When I was uh, first starting, that was another thing that was, I think, hard for me too, with getting into this type of business. It's, uh, is you try not to get too emotionally invested to, to, to say it, or, or maybe another way, you don't, you know, you don't spend the, the, the checks before they're cashed kind of thing. And, um, you know, cause it could, it, you just don't have control. At the end of the day, I don't have control over any of the decisions that the capital groups I introduced to deals what they're going to do. And you could show a deal to 50 different people. They have 50 different reasons why they don't like it. And, and so the hardest thing to do is just to kind of like take a very boring, just stable approach to everything and just know that, you know, it's, you're doing everything that you can. And once I've done everything I can, I start going to look for other deals to work on, things to other work on to occupy my time. So I'm not sitting there just, you know, lamenting about it. And then if that inevitable disappointment happens or this thing that, uh, you know, comes out of left field happens, you know, you kind of look and you're like, that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. I can't even understand this. But then because I haven't gotten invested in it, um, you know, you get over it, you know, maybe two years ago, three years ago, that would have been like, you know, a couple of days I needed to recover. Now it's just like, this is absurd. And, you know, long. just, you get thick skin. Fair enough. You know, when, when you think about failures or what I call learning experiences, uh, learning opportunities, you're looking in the past. I want to look into the future in just a moment. But if you're watching or listening to this episode of The Deal Flow Show, you can get access to our archives, all of our previous episodes, as well as get access to our future episodes by subscribing and following us at thedealflowshow.com. Thedealflowshow.com. All right, Jay, so here's the question. For yourself personally, it could, and, and I'm going to open it up just a little bit. It could be professionally um, or personally. Are there any unmet or um, unattained as yet goals, things that you're still reaching for that get you up and get you excited in the morning? Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, I think it's, uh, I enjoy the hunt. I enjoy the chase. So that's always, always there. But uh, I think it's to continue to grow. I, I mean, I, I do look back uh, from where we were to where we are today. And uh, I am very happy and, and very impressed. We've, we've, 
we've come a long way in a short period of time. We've come to be an effective source for, for, for doing something that's very difficult on the equity side of things. And, and I'm very proud of our people for what they've done. And, um, and I think that the, the, the sky is the limit for growing that team further and growing on our platform further. And we want to, uh, we're, we're, we're in hiring mode. We're looking for uh, future investment sales people. We're talking to a few there. We're talking to uh, additional debt people. We could always use more leverage there and, and selectively on the equity side too. And then uh, finding creative ways to continue to find more of these great relationships that we have. Um, always some, some other goal, but uh, growth. Growth is our goal. Speaking of hiring more people or bringing more people on the team, it could be that or it could be other resources. Here at the DealFlow Show and then our own networks professionally, obviously we, we know a lot of people. We've built a big network. What are the kind of people that you would love to hear from as a result of seeing or hearing you on the show um, project-wise or potential team members? What are the kind of people that you would like to hear from? Uh, I like good people, first and foremost. I think that makes uh, everything more enjoyable, to be honest with you. Time is short. I don't really want to, you know, I didn't do this and come and do this thing just to just to make money. I, did, I don't want to work with a-holes uh, and uh, life's too short for that kind of thing. So good people on the client side. And certainly that's, it's really, that is probably a gating issue on, on our side. We have uh, 15, 16 people total. Everyone gets along. Everyone has a fun relationship with each other. We have annual, you know, we had annual retreats where we'd go out, we would usually go to Denver, go out the mountains or whatever and, and hang out. Everyone has a good time. I, I mean, it's just like this, you know, got some some terminology that I use, maybe it's not appropriate for here, but uh, you know, it's like a, no, no, no jerks policy. And that's pretty, pretty solid. And then from there, it just depends on the role, but we're looking for people who have experienced the real estate world and they're hustlers because this is not a business for you waiting for things to happen. You got to get out there and, and, and grind it. And uh, that's not for everyone. There's a, a rule or a quote I use a lot of times. It's the law of emotional gravity. The law of emotional gravity states that one negative person can pull down five positive people, but five positive people can't pull one negative person up. And don't hire them to begin with if you can, and if you get them, get rid of them quickly because they can destroy an organization, destroy morale, destroy your ability to do deals, uh, ruin relationships with potential clients, or as you said, equity sources, and uh, definitely get all the negative people out of your life and out of your company as quickly as you can. And I'm, I, not, I, and I'm I, not looking your way for any particular <laughs> reason. <laughs> I was just going to say I can attest because his, his partner, Mike Bennett, is a super guy. So I'm sure you guys got it going over there at Cadings Capital. Uh, uh, Jay, tell us something that maybe the audience or our listeners, whatever, wouldn't know about uh, yourself. Otherwise, they wouldn't know. Well, I'm a big University of Michigan fan, so they might know that. Uh, me and my partner and a few other guys own a house in Ann Arbor three doors from the stadium. So I think that's a little bit, I mean, I'm personally, I'm a, a big like Muay Thai guy. Uh, did that for 10 years. So uh, love to do that. Um, no fights professionally, probably not going to happen at this point, but uh, certainly enjoy that. Uh, big, big uh, adrenaline junkie. Well, what is the best way for someone to reach out to you? Is it a website, uh, LinkedIn? What's the best way for them to get into contact with you? LinkedIn is great. And then um, 
Our, our website is uh, cadencerec.com and uh, my emails and, uh, and phone number are up there. So please reach out. We'd love to hear from uh, Capital looking for deals, uh, people looking for opportunities, um, looking for uh, equity sources. We're happy to help there and debt sources as well too. Excellent. Jay Sauvey, Cadence Capital Partners, glad to have you on the show. And uh, on behalf of my partner here in crime, Mr. Paul Nicolini, I'm JP Maroney from Harbor City and the Deal Flow Show team. If you're watching or listening to this episode and you're thinking, you know what, I know the perfect guest for the show. Hey, maybe that guest is you. Get in touch with us. Go to thedealflowshow.com. There should be a link there in the menu for you to apply as a guest or suggest a guest for us. And uh, we'd love to hear from you. If you're listening or watching the show and you know other people in the deal making process, the capital markets, the investment space, and you know they should hear about the show, share it. Share it on your social media. Get the word out there. And we'll see you again on another episode very soon of The Deal Flow Show. Take care. Thanks, Jay. For more episodes, visit thedealflowshow.com and subscribe.